you would take your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel of John. We're continuing our journey through John's Gospel. We're still in the, the first chapter. The next two Lord's Days after this, we're going to take a slight break for the Easter season. We'll be looking at our Lord's triumphant entry into Jerusalem from Luke 19. And then we'll be looking at the victory that we have in Christ's resurrection from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter. But today we are looking at John, the first chapter, verses 35 through 42. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John 1, beginning at verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. <clears throat> One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. May it not be words on a page, sounds that we hear, but may it instead be very life to us. May we be gripped by your word. May we learn, be changed, and exalt in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, John is taking us slowly now through the first week of Jesus' public ministry. After he gave us a glimpse in his prologue of the eternal Son of God who came to earth, he is now showing us Jesus on earth. The first day was when John the Baptist told us that he was not the Christ. And then on the second day, Jesus came on the scene but he was not yet speaking. Now, for the first time, we hear Jesus' words in John's Gospel on day three. Now, the content of what Jesus says is brief, but it sets a pattern not only for Jesus' ministry, but for ours as well. We see three things in our text this morning. First, we have John's statement. 
Then secondly, we have Jesus' question and answer. And then finally, we have Jesus' declaration. John's statement, Jesus' question and answer, and Jesus' declaration. In the background of all of this is a question that John, our author, has. That Jesus asks, and that we must answer. And that is, will you follow Jesus? Let's begin then by looking at John the Baptist's statement. Now we're introduced to yet a third John. We've got to keep track of all of our Johns here. We have John the Apostle, John the author of this Gospel. We have John the Baptist, who is the witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of our text, we're introduced to a third John, John the father of Peter and Simon. But let's keep our John straight. This statement comes once again from John the Baptist as he testifies to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And he repeats a statement that he has just made the previous day. In verse 36, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And you don't need to look up very far to verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. Just the previous day, the last week for you and me as we were looking at this chapter. It's almost a complete replay. John speaking. Jesus walking by. John seeing Jesus as he comes. We might almost think that it's unnecessary for John to say again, behold the Lamb of God. After all, wouldn't the people around there have heard that before? But there is a difference here. Now, the details in our text are important. And the Bible is full of details. The day before, John the Baptist was making a point to direct everyone's attention to Jesus. Prior to that, all eyes were on John. He was the center of attention. His actions were on display. This was so much so that the Jewish leaders came out to John to find out who he was and just what he was all about. But John told them that he was just a voice, just a witness. And he wanted them to see the one that he was speaking about. Now on this day, John is standing with two of his disciples. So this public statement has a different purpose. It's not just repetition, it's intentional. John wanted his two disciples to follow Jesus. Now, we can miss that because those exact words are not used. John doesn't say, behold the Lamb of God, follow Him. But the immediate reaction of his disciples tells us that that's what's happening. We see in verse 37, the two disciples heard John say this, and what happened? They followed Jesus. They knew that's what John was telling them. Now, there is a universalizing nature to this interaction. John, our author, is a man of detail. He gives us many details in this chapter. For example, we know the makeup of the party that comes to visit John, that there are Sadducees and Pharisees involved in it. We know the day on which each of these things happens. He even tells us the place where it's happening in verse 28. But he doesn't at first tell us who these two disciples are. 
It's almost like when he delayed giving us Jesus' name until verse 17 of the prologue. It's not until verse 40 that we get Andrew's name. And we never hear of the second disciple's name. Now this leads us, many commentators throughout the ages, and I agree with them, to believe that the second disciple here is John our author. Because after all, John likes to be in the background. He likes to remain anonymous. Throughout all of this gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, or the other disciple. That's what he is here, the other disciple. And at the very end of the gospel, you may remember, as Peter and John are both running toward Jesus' tomb, having heard of the resurrection, John describes himself as the other disciple. And so, this is something that we should expect. But there are details in this text that it seems that only John the author would know. Like, for example, that it was about the tenth hour that they met Jesus. That's about 4 p.m., for you and me and our reckoning of time. Now, you would think that that would be something that John would remember. The very first time that he met Jesus, he would remember not just what day it was, but what time it was. And that's, I think, a clue that what we're dealing with here are Andrew and John. Now, why is this repeated? I think it's because in this event, we get to see a pattern for evangelism. That is, we must know who Jesus is. John the Baptist tells us that. And we must say who Jesus is. And we must say who Jesus is publicly. And John the Baptist does exactly that. And we must do this. We must say who Jesus is with the intention of having others Follow Jesus. This is what we were made for. This is what we were redeemed for. To tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to tell them who he is in such a way that they will follow Jesus even as we do. Think about how you talk about Jesus. Do you do so in a way so that others can understand who he is? That they would see the truth about Jesus. That they would care about Jesus. It is essential to your faith that you know the truth and that you are willing to state it publicly. That's what a Christian is. A follower of Jesus who tells others about the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not just a public statement. No, no. It is also a selfless statement. Andrew and John are both disciples of John the Baptist. We learn that in verse 35. And you have to understand that teachers are not in the habit of giving away students. You know, we even know that in our day and age. Could you imagine if you went to college and you went to a certain town up north of here called College Station? And you enrolled in a school, and you were in classes, and you bought books, and then you went to class, and the professor said to you, you know what, you really need to go to Austin. You should leave. Go to another place. We don't really want you here. 
We don't need your tuition money. We don't want you to follow our sports teams. Just, you know, go ahead and leave. No, no one ever does that. What's much more likely to happen is the folks from College Station take a trip down to Austin and to say to folks there, come on, you need to come up and be with us. Come join us. And this is just something that in the, in the ancient world never happened either. You were known as a good teacher by how many followers you had, how many disciples you had. And so no one pushed disciples away. And yet here... John is telling his disciples to leave him and to go follow Jesus. Can you believe that? It tells us something about John and who he is and his humility, but it also tells us something very important about evangelism. And that is that evangelism is about Jesus and not about us. Now, I realize that's a shocker, but it's true. And we have to live like that. Far too many Christian leaders put themselves front and center. The ministry is about them and who they are and what they have done. And they want to emphasize their own abilities and increase their fame in the world. But this is also true of ordinary people. When you ask ordinary people to give their testimony, their testimonies about all what they've been able to do. <coughs> all the ways that they've changed for the better. All the things that they can do now. It's as if Jesus is almost a means to an end for them. But John reminds us that the best thing that we can do is to fade away. You don't see John running after his disciples saying, Wait! Wait! Come back! That's not what I meant! Don't leave me! No, you see the exact opposite. This is the one I've been telling you about. You need to follow him instead of me. Go with him. Now that may be said of us. Brothers and sisters, this is not Fred's church. It's not your church. It's Jesus' church. It exists to glorify and to proclaim Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Never forget that. You and I need to live by that. Think of how great John the Baptist was. And yet all he wanted to do was to point people to Jesus. That brings us to our second point. Jesus' question and answer. Now again, John, our author, gives an important detail. He says in verse 38 that Jesus turned around and saw them following him. Now, the two disciples obviously had not spoken to Jesus, had not made their intentions known. They probably weren't even sure what they were doing. All they knew was that their teacher had told them, this is the one, follow him. And so we see the very first words of Jesus in this gospel. And again, we are given a pattern for what we will see in the rest of this gospel. Jesus initiates Jesus is the seeker. He is the one who goes to the disciples. And he speaks to them simply with a question. It's not an intimidating question. It's an open, inviting question. He asks, what are you seeking? That is, what are you looking for? 
You're on a search, I can tell. For what? Now Jesus knows that they're hoping to find something. That they are making an effort to follow him. Now how does Jesus know this? He's just met them. Well, we see this over and over again in John's Gospel. Jesus knows this because he's Jesus. That's who he is. He knows what is in man. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they want. He knows what they need. And this is particularly true for these two disciples at this point in time, but it is also true for all people generally. Jesus knows we are all seeking something. Meaning, hope, purpose. Jesus is not a philosopher. He's not a teacher. He's not a theorist. He is God. He is creator, savior. He knows what we need and what we seek even when we don't know it ourselves. Now, I might ask you the same question this morning. Why are you here this morning? What are you looking for? Each of you might express it differently. Peace, joy, hope, comfort, encouragement, purpose. But in your heart, you know you are looking for Jesus. You know you can't make your life how you want it to be. You know you fall short. So you want to hear about Jesus, the one who gives hope, joy, peace, and purpose. Now, the answer to Jesus' question is not exactly what we expect, but it should be encouraging to us. They don't answer to Jesus, well, we're looking for the Messiah, who will be a sacrifice for our sins and who will give us eternal life with God. That's the correct theological answer, right? That's the one that gets them 100% on the quiz. That's what they should say. But they answer much differently, mildly, unsurely. Look at verse 38. They answer, where are you staying? Now, what kind of a question is that? They call him rabbi, which means teacher, John tells us. So they know that Jesus has knowledge. And they want that knowledge. He has something that they need, but they're not exactly sure what it is. And so they ask him, well, where are you staying? Now, how does that answer encourage us? I think first, it reminds us that we don't have to have all the answers to come to Jesus. You know, it can be intimidating being in church, especially in a Reformed church. The language that we use is so insider. We hear big words that we're not sure of the meaning. Atonement, inerrancy, sacrament, eschatology. What do these words mean? And around us, it seems that everyone else is so sure and knowledgeable. Could it be that I'm the only one that doesn't know everything? Is it okay to even ask questions? Is it okay not to know all the answers? Well, Andrew and John obviously did not have the answers. Even when John the Baptist was trying to point them out. We see this 
over and over again in the Gospel of John. We see it with Nicodemus. We see it with the woman at the well. We see it with Mary and Martha. We see it with the disciples. We see it that everything starts by coming to Jesus for answers. And we have to understand that for our own sake and for others. And we're going to see this over and over and over again in this gospel. And I'm going to point it out again over and over and over again in this gospel. Because one of the results, God willing, that we're going to have from our study together is we are going to be a church that tells others about Jesus. That doesn't want them to have the answers first. That doesn't wait until we have all the answers before we tell others about Jesus. But we are going to follow God's word. Now, the second thing about this answer is that it reminds us that what is really important is not answers, but being with Jesus. Their answer shows us that what they really wanted was to be with Jesus. It was much more than a, we'd like to hang out with you. Now, I have come to realize, as my children have grown, that even today, young people do things much the way that I did when I was older, they want to spend time with their friends. They go to some place to get something to eat or something to do, and they gather up their friends and they have a good time. Now, when I was younger, we didn't have smartphones. You couldn't text. You couldn't leave notes. You had to talk to somebody at school, and if you missed them, hope you could catch them on the phone. But people hang out all the time. That's not what they're saying here to Jesus. They're not saying, we'd like to hang out with you. And we get this from the word that's used. They ask him, where are you staying? And the word here for staying is a word that means to remain, or this should sound familiar, to abide. It's the same word that John uses later when Jesus says, unless you abide in me, you will bear no fruit. They want to know where Jesus is remaining. They want to spend time with him. They want to be with him. They want him to be their teacher. They want to know where Jesus is so that they can be there too. Now let me ask you. Do you want to be with Jesus? Not just to learn things. Not just to have friends. Not just to be important. But do you want to be where Jesus is? That should be your goal. Find where Jesus is and be there. Now Jesus' answer to their question is even better. It's essentially, do you want to find out? Well then come and see. And this answer, come and you will see, is at once a personal invitation. Jesus doesn't give them an answer to send them on their way. He could have said, over there, down the street, at Micah's house. That's where I am. Bye. No. Or he could have said, you obviously don't know who I am. Let me give you a whole bunch of information right now that you can memorize and we'll talk later. No. Instead he says, come and you will see. Be with me and I'll be with you. There is a sureness about Jesus' answer. You will see, not could see, not may see, not might see. You will see. 
And there is also an openness about his answer. Come! It was obviously the best and an honest answer because they came and they saw. Look at that at verse 39. Come and you will see. So they came and saw. It happened. Do you want to see? Are you really looking for answers? Then go to Jesus. Often people ask questions because they don't want answers. I think perhaps the most common is if you're sharing the gospel with someone, telling them about Jesus, telling them about the Bible, they'll say, well, that's all well and good, but what about the pygmy in Africa? He doesn't have a Bible. You're not talking to him. What about him? Let me give you a spoiler alert. They don't care about the pygmy in Africa. They don't even know pygmies in Africa and whether they have Bibles or not. All they want to do is put a wall up between themselves and the gospel. They want to stop the answer to questions. And so, if you look at your life and you want real answers, help, hope, then go to Jesus. He's the one with all the answers. Well, we've seen John's statement and Jesus' question and answer. And now we turn thirdly to Jesus' declaration about Andrew and Peter. It is a declaration of how Jesus has changed and will change those who follow him. We see this declaration indirectly with Andrew and directly with Peter, his brother. Now, one of the two disciples is finally given a name in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And it is interesting that Andrew is the first disciple that we are introduced to. If you think about the disciples, you often think of Peter, James, and John. You might even think of Philip or Nathaniel. Or you might think of Matthew, who's the author of the first gospel. But here, Andrew is the first. Now, what do we know about Andrew? Well, the good news for you is we can talk about it in this sermon because the answer is not much. He doesn't appear very often in the Bible. Only three times in this gospel. And in the few other places that he occurs in the Bible, it is always either in a list or as Andrew, Peter's brother. Now, could you imagine that? Some of you, I think, live that at home, right? You're always under the shadow of a sibling. Could you imagine for all eternity being Peter's brother? Who's that? Well, that's Peter's brother. What's his name? I don't know. He's Peter's brother. Look at him. They even look alike. Right? So we don't know much about Andrew. There's nothing about Andrew that would make us think that he's important. But there's one detail about Andrew that we're given here and in the other two places in John's Gospel that defines Andrew well. He is always bringing people to Jesus. Do you see that? Andrew is bringing Peter to Jesus. He was only with Jesus for a short time, but he saw. And he goes to his brother, and now he knows more than he did when he started following Jesus. <coughs> where all he could say before was rabbi or teacher. Now he says, Messiah. 
He's just been with Jesus for a short time. And it's made a huge change in Andrew. And so he brings Peter to Jesus because now Andrew knows who Jesus is and he knows this is important and he knows he has to share that news. This is not that dissimilar to the other two times we meet Andrew in this gospel. Andrew is the one who brings the young boy with the lunch bucket to Jesus so that Jesus can feed the crowds. And then the third time that he appears, there's a group of Greeks that are trying to find Jesus. And Andrew says, I'm your man. Let's go. I'm leading you to Jesus. He's always taking people to Jesus. And so he goes immediately to Peter. And note, he brought Peter to Jesus in verse 42. Now, I like to imagine this. I have to confess, I have a sister. I don't have a brother. But I've watched brothers interact. I have to confess, in my mind's eye, I see Peter, a big, burly fisherman. And Andrew comes up and he says, come on, you've got to come with me. You've got to meet this man. And Peter says something like, I'm busy. i got fish to catch. We're running a business here. I don't need a philosopher. I don't need a teacher. I don't need all that book learning. And you can just imagine Andrew grabbing him by the arm and not letting go. No, you're coming with me. Come on, brother. Come on, you're coming with me. No, yes, I'm not letting go until you come. And I imagine him almost dragging Peter to see Jesus. Because Peter doesn't know what this is all about, and that's how captivated Andrew is. He's following Jesus. And so the testimony that he gives to Peter is full-orbed. On the first point, it's personal. Do you notice what he says? We have found. I've done this, Peter. It's not something I heard about. It's not something that's theoretical. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. And it's also theological. We have found the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophesied one, the one who is to come. And it's not just personal and theological. It's contagious. He all but says, you have to come too. It's not enough that I see this. You've got to come too. This is what Jesus does to those who follow him. He changes them. He changes the way they think, their priorities, and even their relationships with others. Has Jesus changed you? Are you following Jesus? If you are truly following Jesus, then you cannot help but be changed. There is no other way. Well, if we see Andrew's change through his actions, we see Peter's change through Jesus' words. Jesus tells Simon, that's his name, that he needs a new name. And Jesus is going to give it to him. His new name will be Cephas. And John helps us out, those of us that don't know Aramaic, and he says, that means Peter. Now, what you have to understand is Peter was not a common name in this day, either for Greeks or for Jews. It's not so common as, say, for example, John. We've already got three Johns. No, it would actually be more of a nickname. Now, the good news for you is it's an easy nickname to remember. It's as if Peter is being called by Jesus, Rocky. Now, I don't mean Rocky Balboa. Now, I want you to think about what the word Rocky sounds like. 
It's a new name because Jesus is describing what he's going to do through Peter. And if you think about that, it's absolutely remarkable. Jesus is telling Peter that he is the rock, that he is stable, that he is enduring. Now, we're going to learn in this book that Peter is anything but that. He is a picture of instability. One moment he's walking on water, the next moment I'm drowning, Lord. One moment he's making the great confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The next moment he's rebuking Jesus. One moment he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus glorified. The next minute he's denying Jesus. Peter's the poster child for instability. So why does Jesus call him the rock? It makes no sense. Unless we understand that what Jesus is saying here is that who Peter ultimately is, is determined by Jesus. Not by Peter's personality. Not by his skills. Not by his knowledge. Only by Jesus. Jesus can take this foot in the mouth, often afraid, untrained fisherman, and make him the leader of his church. How? Why? Because that is what Jesus does. He's not limited by us or our abilities. He transforms his people for his purposes. And so if you are going to follow Jesus, you cannot stay where you are. You cannot decide for yourself what you will do. No. When you follow Jesus, you become His. His to mold and to fashion. His to protect. His to use for God's glory. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Now you may say, Pastor, I've been following Jesus for years. Yes. And are you following Him? Are you seeking His glory? Are you bringing others to Him? Are you eager for Jesus to change you more and more into His likeness? There is no one like Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one you need to seek. He is the one who has all the answers to your questions. Follow Him now. You will never regret it. Let's pray.